listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. The first Mary that I want us to think about and reflect upon as we, as we look at the cross tonight is Mary, the mother of Jesus. What must it have been like for Mary, Jesus's mother, to experience the, the, the brutal death of her son? You're looking at uh, a little picture that, that is part of Michelangelo's Pieta, the famous sculpture of Mary holding her, her son. What must it have been like? You know, of all of those people that were there that witnessed the events of Good Friday, I'm sure there were at least some among them who, who had at least some sense that this man who was hanging upon the cross was the son of God, even if they had a very limited understanding of what that meant and what that entailed. I'm sure there were some people who were there that day who had at least some understanding that this is the son of God. But for Mary alone, this is not just God's son. This is her son. And this Good Friday, she watches her son mocked, spat upon, slapped, beaten, tortured, and killed in a barbaric way. I cannot imagine as a parent anything more nightmarish. In fact, I think Mary alone that day had at least some sense of what God the Father must have been going through. You know, every Good Friday, we often reflect upon um, the suffering that Jesus endured upon the cross, and rightfully so. But it's also true that, that the Father suffered at least, at least at the same degree, just in a totally different way. The kind of parental grief and sorrow. He hands over his sons, his son, to these principalities and these powers and, and these conspirators who abuse him and, and murder him. And I think nobody understood more than Mary what God the Father was suffering that day. I could imagine that at different points during this day that Mary's maternal instincts wanted to kick in and intervene in some way, but she was completely powerless. History tells us when the Romans crucified people, they would crucify them completely naked. You know, in the last 2,000 years of artistic renderings of the cross, you always see art pieces that depict the cross and Jesus is always wearing um, a loincloth of some sort, but there wouldn't have been a loincloth that day because the stigma of the cross wasn't so much just the pain, of course, but it was also intended to deeply shame the person. And there was nothing more shameful in Jewish culture than to hang on a cross completely naked. And I could just see Mary's motherly instincts wanting to kick in and intervene and try to spare at least some of the shame that her son was enduring that day, but she was powerless. And when she watches as people spit upon her son, spit in his face, I could see Mary just wanting to intervene and wipe some of that spit off of his face, just like I'm sure she had wiped his face so many times when he was a little boy. But again, she was powerless. I think of the internal confusion and disorientation that Mary must have been feeling because 33 years earlier, an angel appeared to her 
and tells her, you're going to give birth to a son miraculously. This, this son, he's going to become a ruler. He's going to rule the world. He's going to rule all peoples. And he's going to usher in peace and justice. And Mary, you're going to be called the most blessed among all women. But on this day, Good Friday, there's no ruling. There's no peace. There's no justice. And I'm sure Mary had to feel the most cursed of all women. She had to be wondering, how is this possible? Was that really an angel 33 years ago? Maybe this is just some sick cosmic joke, some evil plan against me. Uh, maybe I, I just, maybe I got it wrong. Nothing had gone the way it was supposed to go. Everything at this point seemed completely out of control. But in a strange way, this bizarre turn of events it seemed to sort of fit the pattern of Jesus's life. Throughout her son's life, Mary never seemed to be able to reel Jesus in. There was always this edgy, out of control aspect to Jesus. We first see that when he's a 12 year old boy. My daughter's 12 years old. Jesus was 12 years old when Mary and Joseph and all of their extended family and relatives who all lived in the tiny village of Nazareth, probably a few dozen of them, they're all traveling together as they would every year from, from Nazareth up in the north all the way to Jerusalem, a several day journey and they're excited and they go experience the Passover feast. The same festival that was happening when Jesus would be crucified some 21 years later. And they go to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Passover, this eight-day festival, and they have all this wonderful time together, and then it's time to pack up and leave, and they all begin their journey back towards Nazareth, and, and Mary and Joseph, they just assume their 12-year-old son is, is with them. He's hanging out with the cousins somewhere. And then deep into their journey, all of a sudden they realize he's nowhere to be found, and they panic, and they rush back into this city that at this point is swelled to maybe two or three million people. Their son is somewhere. And they go to all of the familiar places trying to look for him. And finally, they go to the temple and that's where they find Jesus in deep theological discussion with rabbis and scholars and scribes. And Mary goes to confront her 12 year old son. What are you doing? How could you treat us like this? And Jesus says, don't you know that I had to be about my father's business? From the start, it always seemed to Mary, I'm sure, that being about the father's business kind of interfered sometimes with her being about a mother's business. Years later, Jesus is now popular. He's doing ministries, doing miracles. And Mary and the rest of Jesus's brothers, they they start hearing some of the things that Jesus has been saying, some of the wild claims and crazy things that he's teaching and, and, and even the ways that he's challenging the Jewish authorities and they, they're worried for him. They're concerned about his safety. And in fact, they're a little bit worried that maybe he's starting to lose it a little bit. And so they decide they're gonna confront him and, and have an intervention, hopefully to bring him home and keep him safe and preserve him, preserve his life. 
and so they they get a plan together and they're, they're going to go to confront him and jesus he's in the middle of teaching people and so they send word and so word comes to jesus hey your mother and your brothers are outside they'd like to speak with you and jesus says i mean imagine as a mother hearing this he says you see these people listening to me right now this is my family these are my brothers and my sisters and my mother in the end Mary's worst nightmare comes true. She could not protect him. She could not save him. And Mary learned in Jesus' life, which she was now learning in his death, that you can love Jesus, but you cannot control him. You can love Jesus, but you cannot tame him. You cannot domesticate him normalize him. You can't take Jesus and fit him into your nice little box. If you're going to accept Jesus, you have to accept him on his terms. You have to accept Jesus as the uncontrollable, untamable, abnormal Lord that he is. It's not normal for an omnipotent being to choose to go to the cross. That's not normal. But that's what makes him so beautiful. And so as we look at the cross tonight, this first time of reflection, I want us to, I want us to ask ourselves and maybe ask the Holy Spirit to help us, Lord, is there some way that I've tried to tame Jesus? Is there some way that I've tried to domesticate Jesus, to soften him and to take Jesus and fit him into my own present way of life and my own present way of looking at the world? Or are we in a position where Mary was here at the end, where we're willing to invite the God who will not be tamed, who will not be controlled? Have we invited him into our life to do his work of making our lives beautiful in the same self-sacrificial way that Christ lived and died? Remain seated, but let's worship in reflection tonight. I'd like for us to reflect upon is Mary of Bethany. I, there's something about Mary of Bethany. I just, I just love this woman. She, um, she just was willing to live unconventionally and swim against the currents of her culture and sometimes do things that other people were appalled by. And yet she didn't care what people thought. And I think that's one of the things that maybe drew her to Jesus because Jesus was often that same way. He was willing to buck the system and go against the grain. And, uh, and there were times for Mary of Bethany where it really rubbed people the wrong way. We, we catch a glimpse of this when Jesus visits the home of Mary and her sister Martha. And in those days, you know, culturally, whenever a rabbi like Jesus would come into your house, culturally what you would do is you would have the men seated in the living room, so to speak. And the men would listen to the rabbi and take the posture of a student and enjoy his company and learn from the rabbi. But if you're a woman, well, you need to serve the men. <laughs> Go into the kitchen, prepare a meal, and make sure the men have everything they need. But, but the man's place was to sit with the rabbi. And Jesus comes to Mary's home and she says, I want to sit at his feet. I want to be his student. I want to learn the Jesus way. 
And so she bucks against the grain. She colors outside the lines and she takes the posture of a disciple and sits at Jesus' feet. That tells me something about Jesus, that she feels it's safe to do that. Meanwhile, Mary's sister Martha is in the kitchen preparing the meal. And Martha is so upset and she's worried. Because first of all, rabbis don't have female disciples, not in that day, not in that culture. In fact, it was scandalous for a rabbi and a woman to be alone together, talking to one another. And Martha's thinking, what if this gets out? What if people find out about this? What's going to happen to Jesus's reputation or Mary's reputation or my reputation? Doesn't Mary know she belongs in the kitchen? helping me prepare this meal. And she gets, her frustration just boils over and she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell my sister to come help me. If you really love me, you're gonna make certain other people around here do what I want them to do. And Jesus says, Martha, you're so, he actually goes, Martha, Martha. You're so worried and upset distracted about many things, but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen what is better. That word better, there's the connotation of a better portion, like, like in a meal. So he's saying, Martha, you're so busy preparing this nice meal for us. Come to this table. I'm inviting you to this table. Sit at this table and learn. Feast on the bread of life. I want you here. And Mary didn't even have to ask. She just assumes. We, we get a glimpse of, of this in a more radical way later on in Jesus's life. At the very end, in fact, when Jesus is on his final pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he's almost there. He just, he's right at the top of the Mount of Olives and he's sharing a meal once again at the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, who is just raised, raised from the dead, brought back to life. And you see, whenever a traveling guest came into your home, it was customary to do two things. First of all, you would typically take just a little bit of ointment, a little bit of perfume perhaps, and you would pour it on their head. You would anoint their head. And it was a way to honor them, but it was a very practical thing as well. Showers had not yet been invented, so a little perfume could go a long way. But the other thing that was customary is that when a traveling guest came into your home, you would take a bowl of water and a towel. Typically, this is something that the lowliest person in the house would do. Or if you were wealthy enough to have servants, you would have a servant do it. But that person would actually take that water and that towel and just wash their feet. And again, it was a way of honoring them. It was a respectful gesture. But again, it was a very practical thing. They wore open-toed sandals and they walked on dirt roads and the main mode of transportation were donkeys and camels and uh, just use your imagination. People's feet were nasty. And so it was customary to wash their feet. And when Jesus walks into Mary's home, she just goes way overboard. And she takes an entire jar of expensive perfume, pours it over his head, the majority of it. Then she gets on her knees pours the rest of it on his feet and, be, and lets her hair down. This is a respectable Jewish woman would never let her hair down in public. She lets her hair down and begins to scrub his feet with her own hair. 
and, and, and this would be scandalous in any culture. But what, what makes it over the top is that this particular jar of perfume was extremely rare, extremely expensive from the Himalayas. And scholars tell us that it was worth the equivalent about of an entire year's salary. And Mary takes this jar of perfume and spends it upon Jesus in one extravagant act of worship. And everybody standing there is just appalled. And Judas, who is the treasurer of this traveling band of disciples, he's the one who speaks up and he says, Jesus, this woman could have taken this jar of perfume, sold it, and, and taken the money and given it to the poor. And, and Jesus says, Judas, you're always going to have the poor with you. In other words, there will be opportunities throughout your life to minister to the poor. And that's good. That's a, you ought to do that. But you're not always going to have this moment. You're not always going to have me. In fact, within a few days, Jesus will be crucified. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you something. From this day forward, everywhere in the world where the gospel's preached, people are going to hear about what this woman has just done. And then he says to me the most fascinating thing. The most fascinating part is when he says, what she's doing is she's anointing me for my burial. She's preparing for my burial. Here's the question. I got a couple questions. Here's the first one. How in the world does Mary know what Jesus is about to do? How does she know that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to die? Because it's apparent that nobody else in the room knows that. Why does Mary know this? It's because Jesus has been trying to tell them this for a year. Ever since they were up in Caesarea Philippi, up in the north, all the way down to Jerusalem, during this entire journey, several times, Jesus tells the disciples explicitly what's going to happen. And yet, because the disciples were so locked into their way of understanding and looking at the world, they couldn't receive it. The disciples believe that if Jesus is Messiah, he's going to do what we think Messiah has come to do, and that is he's going to Jerusalem not to die. He's going to Jerusalem to kill. He's going to Jerusalem to take over, to seize his throne and become king. That's what's going to happen. And they were so locked into this mentality that when Jesus explicitly tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, it goes in one ear and out the other. The only person in the room who seems to understand what Jesus is about to do is Mary. That he's come to Jerusalem to die. But what Mary couldn't have understood is why Jesus had to die. She deeply loves Jesus. This, this is the man who raised her brother from the dead. This is a man who has affirmed her worth as a woman, as a human being made in God's image and treats her as such as a, a woman who has equal footing with men. And over and over, he, he's the one man who does that. And this is the man who she was willing to spend an entire year's salary on this perfume and anoint him in this extravagant act of love and worship. She loves Jesus, but she could not have understood him. But unlike Peter earlier, she doesn't try to stop Jesus. It breaks her heart but she trusts Jesus, she trusts what he's about to do, and she embraces the mystery of what he's about to do. And she pours herself out in this fragrant offering 
of extravagant worship. So as we reflect once again on the cross tonight from the perspective of Mary of Bethany, I want us to ask ourselves, are we willing to live an unconventional Mary kind of life, even when things aren't making sense, even if God's not making sense? Even if it means perhaps we've got to buck the system and sometimes swim upstream against our culture and sometimes even people around us who are close to us aren't really going to understand why we're doing things the way we are and why we're living the way we're living. Are we willing to be like Mary and respond to the fragrant offering of Jesus' life for us by pouring our lives out in worship to him? Remain seated. Let's reflect and worship tonight. first to think now about the final Mary that we're going to reflect on tonight, and that is Mary Magdalene. This painting, it's actually part of a painting. Um, it's painted by Titian in the 16th century, and it hangs in the Getty Center. I saw it for the first time about three or four uh, months ago, and you know, the Getty has all of these paintings from, they're all impressive, from hundreds of years ago, and I'm just looking at all of them, and when I came to this one, I, it just stopped me in my tracks. And, and there's just a look in her eyes, the, the, um, it just seemed like a sense of just complete humility and, and deep recogni recognition that apart from his mercy, I don't have anything. And she's just in such awe of her savior. I just, man, I just had to stare at this painting for like three or four minutes. Mary Magdalene, she's, other than Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's the one that we know the most about. There's an early tradition that tells us that Mary Magdalene was, in her early life, she was a prostitute. Uh, there's nothing explicit in the scripture that tells us that, although it is, it's a very early tradition, and there are scholars who actually believe there's some evidence to support this. Um, for one thing, we know that in the ancient world, whenever a person's hometown, whenever their location became attached to their name, like a surname, it was often because there was something about that town or that village, there was something about the reputation of that town that was relevant to the character of the individual. And in her case, she's Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdala. It's a tiny village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what we know about Magdala is it had a reputation for promiscuity and, and prostitution. So it lends some credence to this early tradition that Mary was perhaps in her early life a prostitute. We don't know that for sure. But what we do know for sure is that this is a woman who Jesus delivered from seven demons. So whether she's a prostitute or not, you, I think we can all understand this is a woman who had a messed up life. Her life was an absolute wreck. There's a tradition that also tells us Mary Magdalene was exceptionally beautiful. And it wouldn't be uncommon for a person in that culture who maybe doesn't possess all of her full mental capacity and, and maybe she's suffering from some type of spiritual and psychological oppression, and yet she's attractive, she's beautiful. Oftentimes a woman like that would have been very, very vulnerable, a very vulnerable position. And, and so I can imagine you know, that, that perhaps could help explain why she was in that particular vocation and I suspect that Mary Magdalene is a woman who throughout her life over and over and over again had been used 
by so many men. And yet somehow, some way, she meets Jesus and he frees her and gives her her life back and sets her free from this asylum in her mind. And from that moment forward, Mary Magdalene becomes arguably his most devoted follower. He, she follows him everywhere he goes. She will not leave his side because Mary's never known a man like this, a man who loves her for who she is and not for what he can get. A man who, when he sees her, he doesn't see a price tag. He sees her as a human being made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And therefore, Jesus sees this woman as an object of unsurpassable worth. And that's how he treats her. There's something about the look in his eyes, something about the tone in his voice. But everything about Jesus communicates and ascribes worth and dignity to this person. And she never felt more peace, more compassion, more forgiveness, more acceptance. She never felt more clean, more herself, more human than when she was with Jesus. Jesus just had that characteristic. He had a magnetic pull upon people. So what was Mary Magdalene thinking and feeling as she witnesses Jesus being beaten and mocked and whipped and crucified? How terrible it must have been for her to watch the one man who ever showed her respect and dignity to be completely humiliated, forced to carry his cross throughout that town. How terrible to watch is the one man who ever ascribed worth to her, shamed, stripped of his clothes, and suffered the agony of spikes driven into his hands and his feet. Imagine how confusing it must have been for Mary to watch this man who had set her free and so many others from her personal darkness. Now he's hanging on the cross completely enveloped in darkness, even literally the, it's in the middle of the day and the sun's gone black and he's enveloped in a literal darkness. How confusing this must have been for her to see this man who, who was so close to God and reflected the love of God in everything that he did and yet now it sure seems like he's been abandoned by God. The, the scriptures even say anyone who hangs upon a cross or hangs upon a tree is cursed by God. And so I just imagine being in this position of Mary Magdalene wondering what in the world is going on? So many questions, so much pain, so much confusion. And yet she remains there with the other women. All of the men have fled the scene. The women remain. It's even risky for them to be there. You know, there was a decree going out that anybody who was known to be a follower and associate of this man needed to be reported. They were risking something to even be at the foot of the cross, but these women were not going anywhere. There was nothing for them to do. There was nothing they could possibly accomplish. That's not why they're there. They're there simply because they didn't believe that a man who lived this way and loved this way should have to die alone. And so they remain with him. They're not going to leave. And at this point, Mary and these other women, they couldn't have possibly known what actually was happening. They couldn't have possibly understood what was taking place, the meaning behind what was happening on the cross. 
Mary couldn't have understood that Jesus actually was freely entering into this diabolical darkness, the same darkness she had been set free from. Well, he's freely entering into that and suffering at the hands of this darkness in order that now she and everybody else who will believe in him need never experience this darkness again. She couldn't have understood that Jesus was freely entering into this feeling of God forsakenness so that neither Mary nor anyone else would ever need to feel forsaken by God again. She couldn't understand that Jesus was freely allowing himself to be devoured by the demonic powers that once held Mary so captive so that neither she nor anyone else would have to be subject to the demonic powers again. She couldn't have known that. But on the third day, she would begin to know. Early Sunday morning, Mary and the other women, they gathered together at the garden tomb and they're planning to anoint Jesus's body. And I explained that custom a moment ago. They're gonna anoint his body with perfumes and oils. And they find that the tomb is empty. And the very first person to encounter the risen Christ, as John tells us, is Mary Magdalene. Before anyone else, Mary has a private audience with Jesus. And now Mary begins to understand. I'm sure it would take the rest of her life to gain a deeper, fuller understanding of the meaning of the cross. But now it starts to settle in what the cross really means. The cross means that God, out of his love, is willing to dive into the darkest recesses of the human heart. The cross means that when we feel afflicted, when we feel judged, when we feel lost, when we feel full of doubt, when we feel like we're in hell, we've got to know that God is there. When our mind is paralyzed with confusion, when our heart is paralyzed with fear, when our body perhaps is paralyzed with disease, we've got to know that God is there. When our child dies, when our spouse leaves, when our friends bail on us, and even when we're facing our own death, we've got to know that the love of God is there. Nothing can keep the love of God out. When we have failed yet again and the devil condemns us and we feel overwhelmed with shame and guilt, the love of God is right there with you. When you hit rock bottom, look down and you're going to see Jesus looking up at you because there's no depth of pain, there's no depth of evil, there's no depth of sin, of, of sin there's no depth of suffering that the love of God cannot reach to forgive you to redeem you and to restore you. When darkness encroaches, when life is insane, when it seems like God has forsaken us or the people we love have forsaken us, we've got to remember what Mary learned. And that is that God is there and he's with us. He's there in the darkness. As, as one ancient hymn, one old hymn says, the love of God is greater still than any mortal tongue can tell. The cross means forgiveness, it means restoration. The cross is God's eternal expression of his self-sacrificial love towards us. It's God's price tag on us. He's saying, you are worth this to me. 
You're worth me giving everything. You're worth dying for, and I did this for you. So I want you to stand with me. We're going to prepare to take communion, share communion together. And no matter where you are in this room, spiritually, emotionally, physically, I want you to consider this an opportunity to connect with Jesus. He invites you to his table. Just like he was willing to eat with Zacchaeus, the worst sinner in town. It doesn't matter who you are in this room. Jesus is going to sit at the table with you. He died on the cross. He went to that length, to that depth, to experience the worst pain, the worst evil imaginable. Into his flesh, he absorbed it and recycled it with love and forgiveness so that he can begin to make things right in your life and transform you from the inside out. So as we share communion, let this be your step now to surrender yourself to Jesus Christ, to pour out your life as a fragrant offering, just like Christ poured himself out. This bread represents his body, which is broken for us. And this cup is his blood shed for us. And we're going to partake together in just a moment. But I, I want to pray this prayer with you. And I want you to join me in this. In this holy time, Lord, as we remember the sacrifice of the cross, we offer the prayers of our hearts that through them we may be transformed to be servants of your justice, love, and peace. Make us steadfast witnesses of our Savior's reign that we may live in the pattern of Christ who is faithful in all things, even death, and whose darkest hour gives light and hope. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.